Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. Money is a terrible master, but an excellent servant. My name is Thomas, and I'm here as always with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you? And what are you drinking today? Uh, I know it's beer, and I know it's 11 a.m. <laughs> Get this over with. <laughs> uh, I'm really excited. I, I'm, like, super prepared. Um, yeah. Is that and- a river again? No, it's it's actually um, it's an Icelandic toasted porter from Einstock. Uh, it's, it's an Icelandic beer. Um, it's good. You know, just you saying like toasted Icelandic beer. It sounds like something that would be acceptable to drink for breakfast. Exactly. Yeah. It does. I don't know. I'm like imagining you just like in a cabin with some like bear skins on the wall or something, and it's just your morning beer. You know, uh, it, it's an excellent breakfast. It's the breakfast of champions <laughs> slash oh. un, the um, unemployed or... <laughs> <laughs> the breakfast of unemployed champions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I have some uh, some concentrated coffee. They sell iced concentrated, or it's, I think it's concentrated cold brew. Mm. And I just put it in milk. Ooh. So it's like half milk, half that, and it's really tasty. Can I see it? Yeah, well, it's in my Aperture Science mug, but the concentrate bottle looks cool. It has a chameleon on it. Dude, so I'm uh, I'm like very excited slash kind of nervous for this episode because I know you are. (laughs) I've built it up to. I'm also excited, nervous because I know basically nothing. Well, not nothing, but let me just say this. We have had so many guests in the show. Hmm. I've done so many episodes and usually I can, you know, to some degree, follow what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Whenever you and a guest start talking about real estate, I'm just like, huh? You're only talking about yields and <laughs> leveraging your mortgage things and 20% bank, uh, whatever things. I don't know. But anyway, t- so today we're talking about uh, what you call the case for rental properties. Yeah. And, you so, know, it's you, good that it, you don't know because then you can ask me and challenge me and hopefully, you know, pull some stuff out. Um, yeah. Because to say that I'm obsessed uh, would be like calling <laughs> it lightly. If you knew anyone in my life, I, they might even get towards like the psychotic level of time I've put into. Yeah. So, so just real quick overview before we jump into it. This episode, I, I kind of want to explain why you should even consider having rental property, why you should care, why I think it's important. Next will be understanding how to evaluate rental properties. We're going to dive into the math. What does a good deal look like? You know, there's all these like ratios, back of the envelope numbers. It's not that hard. Um, the third one will be chatting with somebody who I'm not going to say yet. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. But uh, And then the final one will be picking an actual property um, because it's not as easy as just like, the numbers are great, get this one, but it's in the middle of a volcano. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that, assembling the team, and reducing your risk because uh, I think that's one of the big pieces of this is really – um, getting the right one, you know, location, location, making sure you have people doing the work for you and then making sure other people have their balls on the line, not just you. Now you own a rental property now, right? I own, well, so I own the, the property that I live in. I own two right. rental properties and this month I'm, I think I'm a third of the way through owning my third rental property. You're moving fast, dude. Uh, I'm trying, huh? How long have you had the two? Uh, so I start. I think the first one I got in June. The next one I got in July. So I, I've been moving at about one a month, which is the you, most I could handle. <laughs> how are you doing one a month? So we will talk about that in episode three because I <laughs> have learned to do as little work as possible. Okay, cool. So <laughs> have we done a proper series before? Never. Plan. So... How do you guys think this is going so far? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yay. Okay, so basically we're going to do the overview here then. Mm. I guess, you know, since I know basically nothing, um, I could make the assumption that the returns are going to be higher, and that would be the reason why. But, I mean, I, I want to hear it in your own words. Like, why do you want to invest in rental properties 
and not just keep shoving money into index funds or betterment accounts or what, whatever we you know usually recommend. So uh, I think one awesome reason is you know and and I think it's easy to hide behind diversification, right? Oh, like I, we all know you should invest in multiple things, but there are times that the market is not the best investment, right? Mm. And yeah. I think just you know spreading your wealth around is good. Um, so, so I think there's that piece. There's obviously a really big return associated. And um, I, we've been very clear that you will not get rich investing in the stock market. And I think it's, if anything, closer to, like, if you can preserve your wealth in the stock market, that's excellent. And then hopefully make a few percentage points above that, you know, like grow it. Yeah. So why is real estate? Because I'm guessing there's other there's other opportunities out there besides mm-hmm. just index funds or mutual funds or whatever. You know, you could invest in gold or I don't know, oranges in some other country. Why exactly would you want to get into real estate? Because real estate, uh, I, I relate real estate as one of the closest. I, I think it's ex- extremely close to being a business that is passive, like it's maybe the the most passive business that you can get into where the 90% of the labor you could actually just delegate out without training. So, and I mean, we talked to, um, the Memphis and best guy, what's his name? I forget his name, but Chris Clothier. Yeah, that's right. You're talking about delegating a lot of the responsibilities to a property management company, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I get that. I get that you can have a property manager you know, deal with tenants, they can deal with maintenance requests, all that stuff. But it still seems like it is a lot of work because you have to go through this ridiculous research process to make sure you're not buying a house that's going to fall into a sinkhole next week or something. It seems like there's just a lot more work to do. So I think if, <clears throat> I think if this was like 1990, I would, and, and, and actually, you know, now it would also be a ridiculous amount of work if you didn't, um, really work and focus on trying to make it easier for you. I'm a lazy man. I have a lot of stuff going on and and I can't dedicate a month to getting a rental property. I could I could lightly babysit it, which is mm-hmm. pretty much what I've done. And so a big excitement of mine was like being able to get into this, not do that much work and then have a bunch of other people put their own asses on the line for my success. And that, that's what finally convinced me to jump in because it's no small investment. Okay. Right? So like, how are you doing that? Okay. So we're not going to cover all of that now. <laughs> we're we're going to cover that this month, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to I want to kind of uh, talk about the numbers of rental properties because one of the, the things that excited me was uh, that the tax-free – portion of it, which is enormous. Like I, quite a lot of it is tax-free. Okay. Um, we, we had talked about tax-free wealth, um, which I, I think is an awesome book and everyone should get. I actually got the audio book. Just listen to it. Did Clayton tell us about that? I think, um, possibly yeah. it, it was maybe him or Natalie. Cause he and Natalie are doing investments inside of a self-directed IRA and that's kind of how they're saving a lot of taxes, right? Mm. Um, yeah, actually you save more if it's a taxable account because the, the, you're kind of in an IRA. It's like stuck in, in the IRA bubble. Okay. Um, now if you make less than $150,000 a year, you could save an enormous amount. If you, if you make more than that, um, it's, you just basically get your rent for free. So wait, if you make less than $150,000 a year, you make, or you save more by not having it in an IRA? So, so let me give a specific example, and I think it'll kind of um, explain it. So say you have a $500,000 property. Right. Um, you're going to buy it. You're going to put 20% down. So you're going to put 100000 into the property, right? Okay. Let's say the annual return of that is 8%, which is actually very low for a property. Um, so you get $8,000, right? 8% of 100000 is eight thousand dollars. Now that that's like with your left hand. 
The well, annual return is 8% on what you invested, not on the value of the property? Yeah, yeah, like that's your return on investment. Oh, okay, gotcha. Right, gotcha. so on your left hand, and, and for a rental property that's low, and we'll, we'll explain why and we'll give examples, but let's say it's it's 8%, right? Because you put 20% down, so it's $100,000. 8%, that's $8,000 in a year. On the other hand, you invest in the stock market. And we say that the stock market returns on average 7%. A year. So let's say you make 7% in a year. So if you have $100,000 in the stock market, you will make $7,000. And and actually, you know what? Let's say the rental property is 7% and the stock market is 7%, right? So you made 7,000 on one, 7,000 the other. The problem is when you sell and you collect your your 7%, you have to pay taxes on that probably to the tune of 20%. At least that's what I'll pay. So- Really? Capital gains tax, yeah. Capital gains is 20%? D- depending on your income. It's it's 15% if you... May, maybe for most people, it's 15%. Okay. So, fine. <laughs> but if, if it was 20%, so... Actually, you know what? Like, let, let's make this um, even better. And and I, I wish I, I did the example exactly as he did. But he said, that, say the return's 10% on the stock market. After okay. 20% in taxes, you then have 8K left. Mm-hmm. Right, so that that's your return after taxes of the stock market. So ten yeah. percent annual return, eight percent left because you paid twenty percent in taxes. Now, um, if you made say eight percent on a rental property, you made eight k. It's tax free because you deduct the entirety of your mortgage interest, and you can depreciate the value of the property. And the the thing is, is the value of the property that we bought is $500,000. Okay. We only paid $100,000. The bank paid the other 400000 but we own it, so we can depreciate $500,000. So... Okay, but I guess, see, this is this is where I start getting confused on mm-hmm. this stuff. So you can depreciate, like, so you're saying the value depreciates a certain amount every single year. Mm -hmm. You could depreciate it over 27 and a half years. You could do it a little quicker, you know. Don't property values usually go up though? So. How does it depreciate? That's the thing is just because the property value goes up, you know, say you bought a computer for your business. It's a common tax tool. You could yeah. say computers on average last you three years. So you take the cost of your computer, you divide it by three years, and you duck, deduct a third every year on your taxes as a loss. Uh, okay. Because you have to replace it every three years. And, and the thing is the tax code, a lot of like people who are not finance people or whatever, personal finance people, whatever, they see the tax, like taxes as a bunch of costs. Mm-hmm. In Tom Wheelwright's book, I think he says roughly 3% of the tax code is dedicated to how much you pay and the other 97 percent is dedicated to incentives or tax deductions basically things the government wants you to do with your money so they want you to buy a computer because then all the computer companies can sell more computers and it grows the economy they want you to buy cars for your business because you could depreciate it and buy more cars and you know same thing with property it's one of the biggest sectors in our economy is real estate so they want you to buy properties. So what you're saying is if we get a $500,000 property for a 30-year mortgage, then you can essentially take a $15,000 tax deduction every single year over the course of that 30 years. Plus, so or, so you could depreciate. There, but. Yeah, so, so yes, but, it, but it's more than 15 because you could depreciate the property. You can depreciate the improvements in the property, like the cabinets, the countertop, the appliances, and you can deduct the mortgage interest. So what oh. happens, so ex- yeah, exactly. And I- I'm listening to Tom Wheelwright's book, and I came and believe this. Like, I had to listen to this multiple times. I had to research it. Uh, I-, I talked to a lot of people. It sounds insane, but it's real. Okay. So you can deduct, basically, if it's if it's $500,000, 30-year mortgage, that would be... Sixteen thousand dollars off of your income every year, just off the mortgage. In time, the other stuff would be, but so basically, you're saying we make eight k a year off of the returns of our investment, and we're not being taxed on that eight k. Now, what, what, where's the, uh, 
the mortgage come into that? Are we making 8K after our mortgage payments? So, or do still have to factor that in? So let's say that's after your mortgage. And what we can give real examples, and we're going to give actual my examples next episode. Okay. I kind of want to like graze the surface and just kind of introduce the concepts. But the one piece that's missing from this, so in Tom Wheelwright's example that he wrote in his book, the property is 500K, 20% down, 100K. The deductions per year are $27,000 based on property deductions and mortgage interest. Okay. So. Wow. Um, your rent is immediately, the rent that you collect is immediately tax-free. So your return is tax-free. And then the additional 20%, if you make less than $150,000 a year, um, you can actually weigh that against your salaried income. So if you're taxed at 30%, you effectively gained $6,000 in tax benefits. Just because you own this property. Just because you own this property and you're depreciating it. But you're depreciating the part that the bank bought. I mean, the bank paid for, you bought. I mean, you're paying the bank like, I don't know, 4.5% interest, whatever. So, and basically what you're saying is what we make every month from the rent coming from our tenant. uh, We take a portion of that, we're paying our property management company. We take a portion of that, we're paying the mortgage from the bank. Everything left over still nets us $8,000 a year and all those costs we paid offset our taxes. Yes. Basically. And and I'll tell you um wow. So look, uh, 8% okay. that that's like his example. Uh I my my one of my properties is doing 25% a little over 25%. So what? not 8%. What? And when we get to episode 3, uh there there is a plethora of properties that were, were 20% or say like we set the bar at like 18%. And I think that's like enormously awesome. Yeah. Uh, and, and getting an 18% property is not difficult. Like if, if you go through the wholesale way that Clayton Morris discusses, um, I'm sure you can get a great return, but it's a ton of work because you got to renovate, renovate it. You have to put the money down. You're not renting it while you're renovating it. And it's like this enormous risk and a long, and I, I just, that's, I can't stomach that personally. Yeah. Right. But uh, the way that I found and a lot of it has been through inspiration from Allison in the community and she's, she's taught me quite a lot. Um, I, I think like 18 percent should be a low watermark if, if you're able to kind of follow um, this path. If that's the case, why aren't like why aren't all the properties gone? Basically, I don't know. It just because, seems like a dude, zillion people would do it if you could do it you know, without a ton of risk, without a ton of work. Cause you're saying like, you're not spending a full month researching these properties. Yeah. A day job. You know, I, I've spent a ton of time thinking about that because, um, whenever I see something that's like that, I, I, first of all, it's like, what the fuck is wrong? Right. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to throw my money away. Um, I, I'm in the business of, of making money. And, and I think it comes down to a few things. One, I just don't think people, are aware, right? Two, I think is enormous amount of work and enormous amount of research to get to the point that you'd be willing to, you know, once you've uncovered all the unknowns. And three, there are just not many people who have the money to make a down payment. And most people prefer to put the down payment into a home they live in, Mm -hmm. which, which is not a great investment by any means, but that's, you know, the American dream. That's what we've been taught. Right. Yeah. So once you take those three things into an account, right. And then, and then a lot of the people who have a lot of money, they're, they're running their own business. So they're funding money into their funneling money into their own business. Yeah. So that was, that kind of led to a couple of questions I want to ask you, hmm. which number one was how much money do you need to get started in this? Cause I mean, obviously your example requires me to have just a hundred thousand dollars on hand that I can throw at a property. This is, this was an easy numbers example because we could do 8% of a hundred. So, I mean, what's a realistic one? What's a realistic down payment that I can be expected to pay? So, I mean, I, one of the properties that I bought was 56,000, it was either 55 or 56,500 down payment plus closing costs. So total outlay, all the dollars that I paid was thirteen thousand seven hundred dollars. Now, oh, those, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, th- that one is super hard to find because mm-hmm. more people can afford it. Right. Right. Um, I think what is more reasonable, I think, I think something that you could have no difficulty finding is something between uh, the seventy to one hundred twenty thousand dollar range for a home. Okay. So it's beyond. I think. What no, I no, could, that, so, really but let, let's work it out. So if you do seventy, or are you saying seventy to one hundred twenty thousand dollars total cost, not so down. That, no, no. So that, that's the price of the home. So a seventy thousand dollar home. Oh, okay. Twenty percent down is fourteen thousand. Yeah. And then closing costs are going to be about three and a half uh, percent. So you do point okay. zero three five. So it would be uh, an additional twenty four hundred, twenty five hundred to close. So basically, what you're saying is I'm not putting down more than 20k for the most part. 20 k should get you into a home. Like there, it, okay. you can absolutely get a home for 20k. That cash flow is great in Florida. That Allison lives. I mean, I mean her rental properties. Most of them are in Florida. We're going to talk about um, the place that my one of my buddy I sit next to at work, where he's been getting them in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so just question, you know, this is my personal financial situation. Most of my money is sitting in Vanguard. I have a few thousand betterment, but most of it's in Vanguard. Either way, most of it's in the stock market. So if I wanted to invest in a property, I would have to take out of the stock market, which would mean I would have to pay capital gains. Mm -hmm. So how would that affect my margin? Is there a way I can easily calculate, you know, what's the break-even point based on the fact that I'm potentially going to lose 15% of... What what you could do is you can calculate that as part of your cost. And um, again, like, I, I mean, I, I, this, I think this is the most teasing we've ever done in an episode or I've ever done an episode, but there's a lot to cover and I want to kind of like get yeah. it done in an organized way. I built, I, I built a tool that I... I, in, in being obsessed about rental properties, I took it to the even further extreme because uh, I was doing all my analysis in spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. I built a tool that will do this stuff for you, and it's awesome. All the all the like uh, rental property mortgage calculators out there. If you just search any of this stuff, it looks like you're browsing the internet in 1990, <laughs> and and the tool's power is like from 1990. So. Yeah. Um, I don't want to talk about it now, but if you the go ones to- that used, you have to just put in, it's like put in the value of the property here and like you have to enter all the data yourself, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. wouldn't it be awesome if, uh, all the stuff that you kind of know anyways, and you have to drag from all the corners of the web was provided to you and it was basically calculated for you. And so that's what I've done, but, but I'm not going to mention it. Uh, we're going to mention it next week. You're like hitting people way too hard in this episode. I, I mean, I, I can't. I, I'll, I'll be honest. Like we're recording this in advance. It's it's not ready yet. Okay. Yeah. I'm still I mean, adding features. I'll be honest. I'm looking at it right now. You're uh, you're looking at it, but the the, the <laughs> dude the the stuff that I have on track to add in between now and then. Forget about it. This episode of Listen Money Matters is brought to you by the good folks over at Harry's. Harry's makes high-quality razors, blades, and entire shaving kits, and they offer them at a fraction of the price of the leading razor brands that you're going to find at your local store. Now, if you've had a look at our podcast artwork lately, you may be thinking to yourself, why is Tom doing the ad about razors? After all, Andrew shaves his mug pretty much on the daily, whereas I'd fit in at a lumberjacking camp and I get emails asking for beard growing tips on a regular basis. But here's the thing. Growing an awe-inspiring beard is just step one, and for that, I'd recommend a daily regimen of scotch, spinach, wearing flannel, and having the necessary genetics. But once you've got that beard, keeping it well-maintained becomes your top priority, unless you want people to start asking you when your ZZ Top cover band is going to be playing this weekend. And for that, you need the right tools. Now, I keep most of my beard at a nice length using a standard beard trimmer. 
but I also use an actual razor to keep a clean line under my chin, which is why I was pretty excited when Andrew sent me one of Harry's starter kits. Compared to the old razor I'd been using, the razor and foaming shave gel I got from Harry's ended up giving me a much closer shave that felt really, really nice once I was done. It almost made shaving something to be looked forward to, like a meditative experience instead of something that I just got done as quickly as possible in the morning. So here is why you might want to give Harry's a try as well. They make their own razors at their own factory in the heart of Germany, and they sell them directly to you via their own website. And by controlling every part of the manufacturing and sales process, they can keep quality very, very high while also maintaining a very affordable price point. For example, you can get the Truman set, which is what Andrew sent to me, for just $15. And that gets you the actual razor handle, which you can choose the color of, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. And as a listener of our show, you can get $5 off of your first purchase by going to harrys.com and entering the code LISTEN at checkout. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S com for the url thanks so much to harry's for supporting our show which we are now going to get back to i want to go into i want to go deeper so i want to talk about leverage now this is something that always kind of confuses me a bit here's the thing um leverage it, it it simply put is using someone else's money to make you money. Okay. And and a very uh, common example is you know in the stock market you could use margin. You could borrow against the shares that you have, and, and amp your return. Give a recap on that, and let me see if I get it correctly here. Basically, that means you already own a bunch of shares, and instead of selling your shares to get money, you borrow against the value of your portfolio and then you go and buy more stock with that borrowed money exactly and you know you're like taking fake money so you own like two shares of stock for the price of one pretty much and if you think about it that's not much different than when you get a mortgage to buy a home right because you can't so i i bought my my condo in hoboken um we bought it at six hundred and fifty thousand dollars but i didn't put that down i put 20 percent of that down there was no way I could afford it to buy all of it. It was it's worth more than I'm worth, right? Yeah. However, the bank um, is basically you're, you're basically leveraging you and your value and the things that you owe your assets. And people do this every day, right? People go out, they leverage themselves further than eighty percent. They'll put five percent down. They'll pay PMI, and this this is you know the American dream. They're leveraged to the hilt. Uh, they're paying out the nose. Um, and, and no one feels that this is risky. I mean, that's how our entire banking system works, right? Because yeah. the fractional reserve system is just every bank leverages money that doesn't technically exist. And, I mean, and, I guess it does exist, but. And you taught us that in, in the money creation episode, how yeah. kind of like money exists because it we make it up, right? So this is like the the flip side, the way for you to do it. So pretty much. you're familiar with uh, Zipcar? Yeah. I've never used it, but I've seen them. Okay, so I think this is like, I think people will understand cars much more than properties because you tend to buy more cars and all that stuff. You did an enormous amount of research on your car, so you understand engines and all prices. And so Mm -hmm. Zipcar's business model is that um, you could rent a car for X dollars an hour. And uh, given an example, this is what you can do in Hoboken. Per hour, you can rent a Honda Civic for $12. So if I want to drive it for two hours to go to the supermarket and whatever, I'd pay mm-hmm. $24 plus, right. plus tax or whatever. Um, now, on its face, like you're driving a Honda Civic um, and you paid $24 uh, and you could have crashed that Honda Civic into a tree. You're wear and tear in the car. Uh, it, it's hard to believe that this could even make money. Right? I mean, it, it makes total sense to me. Because you're paying $24, but then somebody else comes along and, you know, it's a distributed resource. Yeah. Shared between and, many different people. Dude, I, I mean, exactly. And, and so I, I did some uh, research on the internet. And if I was to buy a Honda Civic um, straight up, the, the, the lowest, cheapest model... Um, it would cost me $18,640. Maybe I could negotiate it cheaper. Whatever. Like a new one? Uh, yeah, a new one. 
Because you could pay way less than that. I'm saying, but some, you could negotiate it. But say I'm not going to negotiate, right? Let's just use like default internet numbers. Okay. And contrasting, if you search Honda Civic lease, the one of the first results, it's like actually an ad. It says lease a Honda Civic for $125 a month. Mm. And you could probably negotiate that as well. But let's say that we don't. So that would get you what ten hours of driving? Well, let, let's like break it down like over a year. So let's say that you only rented um, your car at twelve dollars an hour for forty hours a week. That's four hundred eighty dollars a week, right? You Tw- rent a car for forty hours a week? No, no, no. I mean, like, say Zipcar is a business. Oh, okay, rents their it. Honda Civic out for twelve dollars. 40 hours a week, that's $480 a week, just 12 times 40, right? So over a year, that means that they'll earn $24,960. Right. Now, if they bought the car straight up, that's not bad. It's a 33% return, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, they took an enormous amount of risk because they have the car. The car could, you know, explode or whatever happens with cars. But if they have good utilization to that car, then... There's a good return on it. Right. And then they can even use, they could definitely rent it out for more than 40 hours. But just for the sake of this example, we'll say 40. It's an easy Mm -hmm. number. Um, Now let's look at the lease. So if you leased the car, it'd be $125 a month or $1,500 a year would be what your cost is. Okay. Right? So when we calculated the return for buying it, we just did um, the amount that you made, $24,960 divided by the cost, which is 18640 And then what you do is you do minus one, and that's your return. Because you, you know, it's like above the cost. So you, right. Now, that's 33%. And I, I'm sure you can imagine that if you took 24960 and you divided it by $1,500, the return would be insane. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and it, and it is. The return is 1,564%. And, and and if I got a lease with Honda, um, I would pay, I don't know, 1% to 2% interest, which is basically baked into um, the leasing cost. Yeah. So what happened? I, I used someone else's money to make me money. I get to keep all the profit as long as I pay them back. Oh, so I, was, I think I was doing the math for a second and I've, I've lost something you said. Are you saying like if you lease the car and then use like if, if Zipcar leased the car? Do you think Zipcar actually buys their cars outright? I have no idea. I mean, th- that would, would be but I stupid. I guess it would make sense to lease them. Yeah. I mean, same thing with companies that buy like REITs that buy don't, enormous don't amount of rental property. Usually have like a, a mileage limit or something. Yeah, now maybe you pay like, a fine and or for a full forty hours a week is gonna put a lot of miles on it, I'm thinking. Um so Zipcar has in their terms based how many miles you could drive and, and a certain amount of hours you've rented or they charge an additional fee. But think about it. Say you paid fines for overdriving and you multiplied your leasing cost by five, ten, fifteen, the return's still insane. Mm. It's still insanely high. Because and what's happened is you basically you risked very little. You risked fifteen hundred dollars of your money, yeah. as opposed to over eighteen thousand. But you made the same amount. I think we should interview like the CEO of Zipcar or something. I'd be really <laughs> curious to know if they actually do lease or if they have to buy. Be cool to know. Okay. Anyway, how, how does this relate to? You know, I think we're explaining leverage here. How does this relate to? your uh, real estate investing. So um, you could see with, with a car example that um, with leverage, you would make an enormous amount of money more. Mm-hmm. I mean, not you wouldn't make more money. Your return on a per dollar basis would be enormously, well, it would be way higher, right? Yeah. And the risk, the risk is lower. So it's the same thing with a rental property because if, my, so I have a rental property, it makes me $1,200 a month. That's the amount they pay in rent. Mm-hmm. And the property cost one hundred and ten thousand dollars, right? So, if you don't count costs, that means the return. If you do twelve hundred a month times four, divided by what I paid, my return would be thirteen point zero nine percent. 
twelve hundred a month times four. I'm I'm sorry, twelve hundred a month times twelve. Right? Oh, okay. So it'd be like it's like fourteen thousand four hundred. Uh, yeah, fourteen thousand four hundred divided okay. by the price. So my return is thirteen point zero nine percent, not counting any other costs, just amount of mo- gross amount of right. money I made divided by my like cost. Mm-hmm. However, if that number was not one hundred ten thousand and it was actually twenty three thousand, my return would be way higher, right? I mean, yeah, and and that's basically what. Uh, rental investing is like real estate investing is you're basically because um, first of all 13% is great I mean it's awesome but uh, you're you're basically just shrinking your bottom number with leverage okay so I instead mean, of taking I'm, sorry your yeah? top still decreases though because you're paying the mortgage so it's not like you're getting a five times increase in return but, but but it doesn't decrease like in line with the other numbers so if mm. i put half down it's not like the costs multiply so dude i i have a place in indianapolis the rent is 7.99 a month i paid 56,500 or 55.5 or whatever it was um the mortgage plus escrow of property taxes plus escrow of um, insurance, it, it, it's uh, about two hundred and forty dollars a month. All together, yes. Those are yeah. So you're making five hundred fifty nine dollars a month. I, I pay I pay ten percent to a management company. Okay, so you're making five hundred and three dollars a month. I mean, so let me pull up the spreadsheet. So exactly, I am making four hundred twelve a month. I, I my annual oh. property taxes are two hundred forty-two. Um, my mortgage payment is I have to click through this stuff. Oh, I, it's seven ninety-nine, and then the ten percent goes to the property management company before costs. Off the top, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. So we get seven nineteen, then minus your two forty-two. Uh, that got me a little bit different number, but so you said four twelve. It's uh, four twelve forty, and and if you use this tool, uh, so if you use the tool that I gave you, I could actually give you the address when we're not recording, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, you could do the numbers, and and you'll see. Put it in uh, the Skype chat. I'm, I'm sorry. Just put it in the Skype chat. Ah, uh, okay. Keep it secret. Um. Keep it secret. Keep it safe, Andrew. <laughs> Because, yeah, I'm curious to see how the numbers play out with your tool here. So you make 412 a month, and you said you pay – or no, did you pay 110000 on this one? Or no, so this one I paid 56500 I just checked that's the actual price that I paid. That's awesome. My mortgage interest rate was 4.88%. Okay. So 775 monthly rent. And so, okay, so there's some numbers we have to explain here. One moment, please. So, okay, we're back. And uh, you type the numbers into the tool. Um, Figured it out. <laughs> so, yeah, we have a 35.8% cash or 81% cash on cash. What exactly does that mean? Does that mean that's that's like actually your return? That is cash on cash. So if you highlight over the little like info bubble. Oh, here we go. It, it'll, return you get on this investment. So I you I put that. Yeah, that's my return. Basically. Holy crap. So you're making 35% annual return on this. And what you do is you consider things like, huh? That's nuts. But I, I don't want to go too deep in here. I want to talk about this next uh, week because there there's some things to consider in here and like vacancy and but you know that actually that was another question I'd written down. A certain friend of ours owns a home and had I don't know if he has a tenant now, but for a while he had a tenant, and then the tenant moved out, and he was basically just eating the mortgage every single month. Dude, so on the tool, do you see? Do you see where it says vacancy rate? Yes. And it's a, it has a per month value, right? Uh, yep. So there's like a dollar amount per month and then a percentage. So, so does that mean eight percent of the time there's it's a vacant in that area? There property? is 
Yeah, so on that area, properties, the, the entire rental property inventory, there's an 8% vacancy. So what you do is you calculate in that area, the country you mean? Yeah, in that so and you have to figure it out uh, like local to I mean you have to figure it out. These numbers are available. Okay. But um basically what you do is you take that amount per month and you keep that in reserve. Okay. So, so basically it's your money receiving 63 bucks a month. Yeah, so you take 63 bucks a month and you just keep it in the account, you know, 63 out of 400 whatever dollars and that's just a buffer that you build up over time. So then when you are vacant, you just draw down your reserve. You're paying the mortgage on that. It's still your money. Okay, so this 8%, this is basically data that some company has collected for that specific area of that city. Mm -hmm. Okay, and because you have a property management company, they're trying to find a tenant for you pretty much. Right. Okay, so really all you gotta do is make sure you have the cash on hand to manage the property when there's no tenant and then you're good to go. Okay. So, so I think, okay. So we covered like, um, a lot of like really wise, why it's awesome. Mm -hmm. Right. Leverage tax free income, you know, growing your wealth versus preserving it. Yeah. Um, I want to just, uh, talk. Oh, so I want to talk on, on, the risks, but I want to talk about one thing before that, because okay. risks are very important and let's not like fool ourselves. It's obviously riskier than putting into the Vanguard total stock market fund. Yeah. Right. The one other thing I want to talk about is um, becoming rent slash mortgage neutral. Okay. So the biggest expense in my life, and I'm sure most everyone on the show or who's listening, the single biggest expense in their life is their rent slash mortgage payment. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, uh, not, not you, <laughs> you're not a normal person. My biggest expense in life is, uh, paying Martin. And my biggest personal expense is currently my car, but that's because I'm paying it down faster than mm. it, I think it would be rent if you don't count business things. And if I was doing minimums and everything, but well, I'll be honest. My my personal biggest expense is beer and then mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're kidding about that. <laughs> only only mostly kidding. Roughly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I've kind of become obsessed with this uh, idea of becoming, becoming like rent or mortgage, for me, mortgage neutral. Does what, that mean just paying off your mortgage? Well, no, no, because I, leverage is awesome. I get to own this baller place for only 20% of its value. Okay. Right? And if I can have uh, rental properties that cash flow to the amount that it costs me to live in this place, I effectively live in I, – I have free shelter. Okay. Question there. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned leverage on something that is not an investment. Because you don't consider your home an investment, right? Nope. Okay. Given that logic, wouldn't me taking my car loan at 2.5% be leverage? Yes. You're just not earning on it. So all those people who uh, like roasted me in the comments of our, our car buying episode, like the whole time I was saying technically I could have just taken all the money that I would have paid for the car outright and invested at a higher percentage rate than the 2.5. So I'm actually making money off of that. And then everyone's like, that's stupid. That's, you know, ridiculous. <laughs> You're doing the same thing with your apartment. Well, dude, so this is, this is why when people have debt and it's like 2%, we don't tell them to pay it off because you could make more money with that money than paying it off, paying off the debt. Right now, so leverage kind of runs totally counter to the whole debt free mindset. But, but here's the thing is you're not directly earning off your asset. If you were driving for Uber, and you're say you're leasing a Honda Civic for 125 a month, and you're earning 3,000 a month with Uber. You've basically through leverage provide yourself with a job, and you you make money. Yes, but you're not earning money directly through your condo or your whatever you call your what do you call your place a condo apartment or uh, a condo. But but okay. the thing you're is not is money through your condo. So I, what's the definition of leverage here? Are you is leverage only on assets that directly help you make money, or is it on anything it, where okay it is leverage no matter what 
But the thing is, is I don't make any money off my property. My property is, I think, net a cash sink, but I'm able to afford it and blah, blah, blah. I've done well. So I decided to buy a place so Laura and I can break the walls. <laughs> yes, that's why you buy a house. So you can kick doors down and, and yell in your words. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I have kicked doors down or door down. One door. One door. I hope you did kick it. I did kick okay. it. The doorknob flew across the room like a totally. It was a particle board door. I felt like like a <laughs> WWF wrestler. John Claude Van Damme. <laughs> so I just wanted to establish that though mm. that uh, when you when you adopt a leverage mindset with an asset that is not a direct profit generator, such as your house or my car, you are moving away from the debt free mindset in your personal life. Now, that's not like obviously it's not necessarily a bad thing because, like you said, you're using the savings to make a higher percent than your mortgage costs you. Mm -hmm. So you're actually making money off of that. So what you're doing is you're taking cheap. Sorry. I just want to establish like we are getting away from the whole have no debt kind of thing. So if you're, you know, you're the kind of person who feels like you want to have no debt, this is kind of getting away from that okay have no debt is have no credit card debt have no high interest debt mm-hmm. um we've we've never ever since day one said don't get a mortgage yeah right? we never said that and i think the thing is um so you're you're in in something like real estate or you know if, say you're driving with uber or whatever you're taking cheap money and using it to make more money for yourself yeah if you weren't it makes less sense and and the only thing that you have to consider and i want to jump into the risks is that you provide yourself with a cash buffer so that it all doesn't come down like a house of cards mm-hmm. right because that that's what happens when you over leverage yeah which we talked i think we talked about that in the, the stock leveraging episode where you know what happens if uh you get a margin call or something mm. and the value of your shares are down so you just can't make that call now you just owe your broker a ton of money and mortgage calls are are, i'm sorry margin in general is so much more risky than um, pretty much any other kind of leverage because you're all you're basically like gambling with it yeah so the risk here is you put down 20 percent on say a fifty thousand dollar property so you pay you know 10k plus closing costs or whatever but you now owe forty thousand dollars to the bank no no well i mean i mean yes but you owe 200 something dollars in a payment a month. So I'm not saying you owe, you know, it's obviously amortized over 30 or mm. more. So the, the bank's never going to call you up and be like, yo, you owe us 40 K right now. Or we're sending Vinny over with the you know, pliers, but you do owe a sizable chunk of money. And if you don't have a tenant in that house or if something crazy happens, yeah, you are exposing yourself to having to pay that back over that period of time. Yes. And, and what you need to, what you need to focus on is like monthly cash flow. So mm-hmm. what is your cost per month? And, yeah. you know, can you cover that? And, and if things go... You can have the down payment money on hand. You can buy the, the property. But if you, you know, say you have your job, if your job is literally covering your personal expenses, then it's probably too risky to be doing this yeah. because if you don't have a tenant, you're on the hook for, you know, say in your example, that $412 per month total costs mm-hmm. uh, or no, that was your profit. That's profit, Wh- whatever yeah. the difference between 799 and that is you're on the hook for that mm-hmm. every single month. So you need to be having, you know, an extra 500 coming in every month that in case there's no tenant or in case something happens, you can cover the mortgage until such time that you can get a tenant back in the place. Mm. Yeah. So it's not a beginner investment strategy because you must have capital on hand to A, get started, but B, keep the train running if, you know, the conductor jumps out for a while. It also reminds me real quick because I, I do want to go. Yes. And I do want to go into the risks deeper. But the the rent. So this, this 412 a month that I get from mm-hmm. this property, that's like cash flow that I, I get and I keep and I can go and I can gamble with it. I could do whatever. But you also have a mortgage payment, right? And your renter is effectively paying your mortgage payment, and in that mortgage payment is principal. So they are paying like value into your property that you own, 
So mm-hmm. you're, you're gaining money through them paying principal. And your property will appreciate over time, hopefully in line with inflation, so about 3%. So, you know, you're not going to make that. You don't want to make a ton of money off of like flipping properties. You just wanted to keep in line with inflation. But that is also dollars that you gain every year. Yeah, it's it's inflation protection. Mm-hmm. So there's other value. OK, so, I mean, beyond the whole tenant leaves, you've got an empty vacant place for a while. What are the other risks? Uh, I know you, you talked about setting up systems where you have a team and you have people who have their balls online, as you like to say. What sort of risks are you still open to? Like if a meteor comes down and destroys the house you bought, hmm. how much of that is, you know, your ass is on the line for paying all that? Does insurance cover most of the meteor fragments and everything or what? So uh, when you buy a home, you have to insure it at least up to the value that you owe the bank. The bank requires it. They will not give you a mortgage otherwise. So. So you're paying insurance. Is that the property insurance cost then? Yes. Okay. So meteors basically taken care of through insurance. So so you could only insure it up to what you owe the bank. And then when the meteor hits the house, the bank's happy you paid them off, but you're out your cost. But you yeah. can also insure it to the purchase price so that like the meteor hits the house and you walked away with exactly what you had before plus whatever rent you collected before the meteor. Is that what you do? Yes. Okay. I, I have a higher deductible. My, my goal is to never use my property insurance because my premiums go up unless literally a meteor hits my house. So yeah. a meteor hits my house, I'm covered. But if the roof collapses and it's not like insane and I can afford it, then I, I plan to pay for that. But, okay. but you could use your insurance. You could okay. use your insurance for it. It will cover you. Your premiums will go up slightly. So I want to... You- got money set aside at least mentally to deal with big repairs if they come up yeah so so that's okay. kind of so my mindset is i want to keep my monthly costs as low as possible and i will sooner eat 5k as a one-off like random act of god type thing than um claim an insurance claim but i could maybe at the time that the meteor hits and i'm just like or you know the roof collapses i'm like i don't want to pay for this i want to buy another property or whatever i want to go on vacation and i guess i'll decide when it happens so property rentals are kind of like i don't know building a campfire or something Mm -hmm. you know once you get it started it, it should hopefully keep itself going and grow but there may be a rainstorm or something so you basically need to keep yourself on hand to you know add something if you need to and that's really the fundamental difference between this and something like a mutual fund where you put money in if the stock market's down your fund is down but you just wait for it to bounce back up Mm -hmm. you know like pretty much zero risk of you having to put more money in after you've already put money in whereas this may need some maintenance costs correct and i mean on the tool um there's a major slash minor capex calculation and they're, they're what are the capex capital a- capital expense so there's Wait, a little, what that means <laughs> again again there's a little like info bubble so the info bubble when you highlight over it says the cost of things breaking this is an estimation on the long-term break fix costs for a property since breaks do not happen often but can be a sizable sum the capex rate is used as a suggested contribution to your uh, reserve account 10 percent is the common rule of thumb so basically, okay. it's like you buy a property. Ideally, it's not about to burst into flames, you know? And then over time, you build up your reserve account, and then something happens, and it comes out of your reserve account. So really, to break this all down, you are getting $799 a month. Mm. Now, 10% of that goes to the property management company, and you pay property insurance, you pay property taxes, you end up with 412 and out of that 412 every month, it would be smart for you to take 18% of the original rent. So, um, you know, $79 is a 10% for the breaking things, break fixed costs, and then 8%, which is $63. So it'd be a good idea for you to take roughly, what, 140 bucks mm-hmm. every month, set that aside, make sure you don't spend it, because that is what you'll use when shit breaks or when somebody leaves and it's empty. Exactly. And the thing is... Pocket and do it with with what you want. Yeah. Ideally, probably buy more rental properties. 
And and that's the whole thing is, uh, you know, like, like, why don't people do this is because, well, I mean, things break and then they didn't have enough money and then they, then they had to sell their place or and things go wrong. But I think if you wrap a mathematical model around this that has yeah. been refined by pretty much everyone on the Internet who has rental properties over the course of whatever and, and you buy it with that model in mind, um, you should be fine. And. You know, if you look at the property uh, in the tool, there's the monthly. So in the cash flow area, there's monthly, which is what, you know, the 412 and whatever. Then there's medium term and long term. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of like subtract, you know, medium term. Like there are some expenses. Like you have to get a new fridge. Long term, you have to replace the roof. You know, and if you're still cash flowing in the yeah. long term, you're good. And but basically the whole thing, like pretty much how we approach money in general or how we approach our businesses is you like do you do your research and you build a model and you set a bunch yeah. of processes and habits in place like putting the money into the reserve account every month for when you're vacant and then you're vacant and you still collect your rent you just pull it out of the vacant you know the vacancy fund um and and if you've done the math and and you follow the process it it's it's like a I don't know yeah Okay, so I have one last question for you. Mm. Um, you recommend getting twenty five thousand dollars in your your Vanguard or your index style funds mm-hmm. you know, as your initial investment base. You know, you pay off your debt and you work out the twenty five thousand dollars. So I've done that. Um, mm. My Vanguard accounts are worth, I think, nearing thirty now. Should I? I guess what what would you do in this situation? Would you keep 25k in Vanguard and only use money beyond that to invest in properties or would you take a sizable chunk of your 25k investment base and move it into a rental property, you know, assuming you've done the the, the right research? So, as of this point, and then we'll say including my commitments with the property that I'm working on now, Laura and I will be invested about sixty to seventy thousand in rental property. Um, I don't see myself ever going to fifty percent. Uh, I, th- I think that might be like my line, um, okay. because I first of all I, I I just enjoy having you know cash investments. I like that piece. I also want to be able to weather storms. So when the roof collapses, I want to be able to absorb that cost and not have my entire, everything I've built for my whole life collapse like a house of cards. Right? So I think uh, that's like my uh, maximum point. I I don't think I'll get to 50. I think, you know, starting out, if you were like 80% cash, you know, 20% uh, was a down payment into a, a rental property. I think that's like very prudent. So you're saying, you know, say I have $25,000 in my Vanguard, you wouldn't take any more than 5,000. Right. I, I would save yeah. up in addition. Like I, I think you okay. have to, um, look, one of the biggest risks of rental properties is that they're very illiquid. Um, you know, if I was getting rental properties in Hoboken, I could sell it in 30 to 60 days. Yeah. But I've been getting a lot of places in Georgia, um, and I might have to sit on it for six months before I could sell it. So if I need that money, I have to have it somewhere else. Okay. So it, it certainly doesn't replace an emergency account. So for someone like me, you know, if I've got 30, that means I, you know, at a safe, at a safe kind of buffer for my investments, I've got maybe $10,000 that I could start thinking about putting towards a rental property. So I safely keep my 20 K, you know, I'm not even counting retirement accounts because I've got extra in in, uh, the simple IRA, but I don't even count that as part of my money tool, I guess. Yeah. And dude, look, you, you could absolutely go harder on it, but I think like the ultimate goal is you want to grow as fast as you can, but be bulletproof. Because at right. first, it, as you get bigger in general with your net worth, um, it become you become much more preservation focused than growth focused. Because when you had one dollar, you can, all you can go is up, right? But when you have you know a hundred thousand uh, dollars, you could also lose a hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so this I guess is a follow up question. This is not maybe this isn't for this episode, mm. but I mean, you talked a lot about the tax savings of this. 
should somebody be maxing out their IRA if they can save a ton in taxes off of a rental property? You know, like take my case, because my IRA contribution limit is not uh, low $5,000. You know, with the simple, I could put up to $12,000 and and then I think I could put up to 3% of my salary. So whatever that is, depending on what my salary ends up being. Um, you know, is it smart to put the full $12,000 in the IRA or is it smarter to put, you know, $5,000 in there and take the extra $7,000 and invest it in properties and you know, do the savings that way? It like, uh, the, I think the reason like there's no like answer sheet for this stuff is because it's so deeply personal. Mm-hmm. My, my personal strategy I think is vastly different than maybe the most people in the audience, but I will always make more money. I, I will not retire. I will transition into businesses that I own. I will have mm-hmm. more rental properties. My income will forever increase. And if that's the case, something like a traditional IRA doesn't make sense for me because I'll pay, mm-hmm. I'll save on a lower tax bracket. And then when I withdraw and the government forces me to, I'll pay on a higher tax bracket. So the government's th- force you to withdraw? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when my dad was actually just bitching to me the other day that uh, I, th- I think at 70, they're making him withdraw. I don't remember the exact age, but you have oh. to. They, they basically estimate how long you will live and they make sure you're going to draw it out by then or, or like roughly. Okay. Um, so for me, the, the, the money now to invest in my business and rental properties and whatever is far more valuable then I, I invest in Roths because I'm going to make more money in the future. So when I so to grow my money tax free, that's very appealing to me. Mm. So, okay. in, so in my case, and if, and if you resonate with my approach that you're going to you know have a business and you're going to forever make more money, then yeah. you should follow that approach. But if you're going to do a more traditional work to X year retire and golf or whatever, then you should be putting more into a, a traditional. Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, I will probably be working until the day that I die. Hashtag hustle. So, hashtag hustle, hashtag ball and crush it. <laughs> so it probably doesn't make sense for me to be maxing out my IRA then. It probably would make more sense for me to be saving. You know, I could probably save an extra grand every month from what the business brings in and just start building a buy my first property fund. Look, um, of, there will de- we'll definitely get emails and people will yell. Um, hmm. I I know, like over my dead body, will I make less? That's just not me, right? So, um, if that's the case, I think that makes more sense because seven thousand dollars today, you could do so much more with than seven thousand dollars when you're sixty because you're going to put into your business, you're going to buy rental properties, you're going to make that money exponentially grow. Yeah. You know. Cool. Well, once again, you give me a lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Uh, but I think I'm, I'm going to get through these these four episodes before I take any action, because I do want to hear more of, you know, the juicy details of exactly what you did mm. with your properties. And I want to ask you more stupid questions about how this tool works. So, yeah, next episode, we're we're going to get deep deep in the math. So if you're afraid of math, then you definitely should get rental properties and you should <laughs> definitely skip next episode. But I'm basically going to explain how it all works. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. I don't think people should be afraid of math. No, because... One, uh, if you're smart enough to calculate a tip at a restaurant in 30 seconds, like you can sit down and do some slightly more complex math in an hour. And that's so much more high pressure than pretty much any <laughs> other math in your life. The tip? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's judging you. Did I move the decimal in the right direction? I don't know. I'm just going to go with it. And the thing is, is we're going to teach it to you. We're going to jam it into your brain next week. Mm-hmm. And we're going to give you the address to the tool. So you can go log in. And then you won't have to do the math because the tool will do it for you. But at least you'll understand. Yeah. And this isn't just us being like artificially, uh, like, I don't know. What's the word? We're not like artificially teasing not sharing the tool right now. Okay. Uh, the notifications bar literally still has Laura Mipsum in it. <laughs> <laughs> this likes to tell me that uh, Laura Mipsum, Dolores, said that. So <laughs> it's still got a little bit of tweaking to do, but um, yeah, the numbers just, they work. And this is really cool. And I think doing this episode has been really useful for me because when you showed it to me, 
uh, last week. I was like, this is really cool, but I didn't, I kind of didn't get what I was looking at, Mm. but I'm starting to kind of form a picture of like, oh, I think what was really helpful here was the concept of um, this major and minor capex rate and the and the vacancy rate just coming straight out of the profit I make from the property every month and not really considering that to be a loss, just a holding percentage mm. that I do keep. Um, but it does help. You know, I, I still keep that money. It's not like it's because, going up. Dude, imagine if you if you got to a point where you're able to live off your rental property income, right? And yeah. you and you. Funnel this into a reserve account every month, you know, the vacancy rate and the, and the capex. Um, when you are vacant or you do have repairs, you could pull out of your like uh, your reserve account and potentially still take income, right? Yeah, I mean, it shields you. Know, you. And if you're reserving stuff there, you, you know, you're bringing in 272 per month that you can spend. Say you work up to 20 properties, that's over $5,000 a month and just pure profit that you can live off of if you want so you know i think you could realistically work work up to that much that's basically what allison's goal is right mm. is to at least have 20 and and I, I have to give credit where credit is due this tool the math behind it which which i've also researched outside is 100 percent based off of what allison provides in the community what she's taught um this is all learned and then built upon from what uh she's shared um yeah she she totally sent me on like a four month (laughs) trek um and and she saved me a ton of time shout out to allison our resident real estate expert we should get her back on the show at some point yes yeah that'd be cool cool man well, I guess we'll pick this up uh, this discussion up in next week's episode. Which, what's that one going to be about again? Okay, so next week uh, is understanding how to evaluate rental properties. So the math behind it, um, what it means, uh, and and what you should look for. Cool. And then we have an interview with a special guest coming up in our third episode. A very Last special episode. guest. Yeah. And then the, the last one is um, what's that one again? Picking a property, assembling a team, and reducing risk. Okay. And it's it's about the insurance. It's about getting the right property management and the people setting up your deal. And um, the tabs that you don't see in the tool right now, like research, you mm-hmm. know, the crime rate and vacancy and, and all these things, like um, are things you need to consider. Uh, and hopefully yeah. we'll do for you. Sweet. Well. Stay tuned and uh, until next week's episode for that, guys. And until then, if you have questions for us, you can always email us over at listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. You can also find our favorite resources, apps, tools, everything besides this tool that we're developing, listenmoneymatters.com <laughs> slash toolbox. And you can also join our community of money nerds at listenmoneymatters.com slash join. So thank you guys so much for sticking with us to the end of this episode. And we will see you in next week's episode. Later. Later, man. Please tell your friends about this show.